just before I begin uh, the sermon today, a reminder that we're um, allowing a little bit of time at the end of each sermon for questions, uh, but it's also meant not just to be sort of stump the rector. What it's meant to be is, as you're listening or as you've read through uh, this passage of Scripture, did questions arise or thoughts or comments or things that didn't get addressed in the sermon? It's not meant to be, as I said, directed towards me. What it's really meant is to open conversation. And what I hope out of this is to emphasize and encourage us to know that my job is not simply to tell you the way I think things are and have you believe it. My job, I think, is to equip you enough so that you can help sift the chaff from the wheat. Not everything I say may be right and not everything will be equally weighty, but I hope that you come to a love and understanding of the scriptures that allows you to discern yourself and have confidence in thinking and reflecting on uh, what the scriptures are saying to us. So in future, if you find it helpful, um, bring a Bible with you and, and you can read it as you go through. And there's a stack of them there at the back I put. Uh, so if you haven't had the chance to bring one, you're welcome to take a look at it too. So just mental note, uh, move ahead uh, a few minutes until after the sermon. And if something's come up, just feel free uh, to mention it or um, talk to me afterwards during coffee hour or chew it over. With that out of the way, uh, let's begin looking at our passage today from Ephesians chapter 6, beginning at verse 10. We've been looking through Ephesians over the past few weeks, and so we're continuing now, and this is the last passage from Ephesians that we'll be looking at, uh, and so uh, I wanted to explain a little bit about what's going on here, but to set it up and to help us understand a little bit, I was thinking as I was preparing the sermon of uh, several years ago, uh, a quote by a man named Donald Rumsfeld. You may know him because uh, he was um, uh, serving as the... Uh, it's not the Minister of Defense, it's the Secretary of Defense in the uh, George W. Bush uh, government. And he was a person who was really a strong hawk, which is usually political uh, code for saying a person really in favor of going to war uh, with Iraq. And I remember the quote as he was being asked about the buildup to Iraq, and, and they've been talking about how they thought Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. Uh, he said, well, uh, you need to understand about uh, intelligence and about knowledge. He said, there are known knowns, there are known unknowns, and then there are unknown unknowns. And sometimes he got mocked for that, and he was a man I think deserved some mockery. But at the same time, he was actually quite right about this, and more right than he even realized. When he said that there are known knowns, that's what we know and are right about. I know certain things about my house or about my family, and I know I know them. Other things are things that you know you don't know. So uh, I know I don't know much about physics. That's pretty clear. Or, uh, as it turned out, uh, Rumsfeld was saying, we know he has weapons of man dis mass destruction. What's unknown is where they are. That was, he said, a known unknown. But unbeknownst to him, the unknown unknown was even more dangerous. It was more dangerous because he didn't realize that he was completely wrong. There were no weapons of mass destruction. An unknown unknown is a real problem because it's something you think you know, but in fact you don't, and that's even more dangerous than the things you realize you don't know. I bring that up because today's passage deals with something that's quite difficult for modern people to wrestle with because it talks about supernatural evil. And this is something that we, uh, for many, I think, probably legitimate reasons, struggle with believing in. And uh, as modern people, we often have that challenge when passages come up in the scriptures. But I believe that there's the same danger that Donald Rumsfeld spoke about, the unknown unknown, if we don't take these dangers seriously. Because the problem is, is that when we look at supernatural evil that St. Paul warns us about and we simply dismiss it, we are easily in the position of being swept away by things we did not expect because we didn't even believe 
that they were a danger. I'd like to speak to you today about what Paul says we're up against in the spiritual battle we face as Christians and how it is that God helps us and equips us to fight the battle so that we're not caught by surprise and we're not crushed by forces too big for us. Now, I mentioned earlier about the modern people having difficulties in believing in supernatural evil, and I have to say I sympathize with it. One of the reasons we have a hard time believing particularly in personal evil is because um, we find uh, sometimes that it's used as an excuse to prevent us from actually acknowledging our own complicity in things. Perhaps you've been in a church that's a more, you know, sort of conservative church that talks about supernatural evil, uh, and when something goes wrong in the church, a person starts saying, well, you know, the devil's at work here, right? Well, maybe, but maybe it's also because you're a jerk. That's why the church is having problems. Instead of looking around for devils behind every bush, maybe what you should do is take a good hard look in the mirror and ask yourself, am I making my church an unpleasant pe place for people because I'm petty, because I won't forgive, because I, I take every slight too seriously, or perhaps because I'm not taking seriously my responsibility to love my neighbor? So often we get suspicious of supernatural evil talk because it uh, goes with what Flip Wilson used to make fun of uh, in his comedy routines. Oh, the devil made me do it. Well, no, maybe you just did it because you are not a person who's growing in virtue. Here's a second reason why we often find uh, supernatural evil a difficult thing to, to uh, acknowledge. Because so often people who are drawn to this idea turn out to be fanciful and crazy, looking for uh, the devil behind every bush. I just read an article recently about a person who was convicted uh, back in the 1980s uh, for child abuse. And what they were noticing was is that how this great rash in the 1980s, rash of cases, of hysteria around satanic ritual abuse. You may have remembered those things in the news and how whole daycares people got uh, um, arrested and brought before the courts and saying that horrible, unbelievable things were happening in the daycare, that they were slaughtering goats with children and doing things you think today crazy. Well, they turned out most of them were dismissed out of court and those who were convicted, almost everybody, uh, was overturned on appeal because these were things that children who didn't understand sometimes the difference between reality and imagination unfortunately made up. One of the challenges in believing in supernatural evil is that you end up looking for, for the devil behind every bush and you get obsessed with these things. And if you read on the fevered places in the internet, you cannot go, or don't have to go far before you find weirdos uh, making hay with this stuff. The last thing, and I think something that makes it hardest for me, frankly, is that it can seem pretty ridiculous. Again, I'm dating myself with the references from the 80s and 90s, but do you remember a comic named John Lovitz? I used to watch Saturday Night Live every Saturday night, and I remember he used to have a, a little uh, skit where he'd dress up as the devil, and he'd be in this like uh, red leotard outfit, and he's, let's just say, a little bit pudgy, uh, and he's got a whiny kind of voice, and he'd have floppy little horns and a sad little pitchfork. Uh, and I remember one scene in particular where you, you may remember, again, I'm dating myself, the People's Court, where he uh, gets sued because he uh, reneged on his deal when somebody gave uh, away their soul in exchange for eternal life. So you look at that and you think, I can't believe in something that silly. So I totally sympathize. And as I talk about supernatural evil, I want you to understand that it's not a requirement that you have to as a Christian. There's a reason why the devil doesn't make it into the creeds. When you say the creeds and what we believe, we don't mention the devil because he's just not that important. The danger, however, is this. As I said, by failing to recognize there are forces we don't understand and forces beyond our control and don't prepare ourselves for it, we leave ourselves open to falling very heavily because it's so easy for us to believe that if we're living right 
and we're in a right situation that things are going to go smoothly here on in. And it doesn't take long before you're disabused of that notion because something so easily comes out of left field and rocks your world that you never expected. I think it's important, even if you have a hard time assessing or believing in a personal supernatural evil, but to realize that there are forces around us bigger than us that can destroy us and destroy our faith is deeply important if you want to continue in the Christian walk. And that's really what I want to focus on today. So as I get a little bit closer and, and deeper into this passage, let's look about what Paul specifically warns us about, about what we're up against. If you look in Ephesians chapter 6, St. Paul talks about how we are to be, um, in verse 10, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his power, but immediately he challenges us in verse 11. He says, put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Verse 12, for our struggles not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, one of the things that I notice, and he particularly talks about the wiles or the craftiness of the devil, is that we're also in a danger, even when we agree in the nature of supernatural evil's existence, as we tend to think of it as some grotesque evil that we read about in the newspapers. Perhaps Nazi death camps or weird stuff that you read that is clearly horrifying. But he talks about the wiles of the devil, I think, particularly because one of the greatest dangers we have is leaving ourselves open to personal attack or at least expecting it, because they tend to be small and apparently unimportant. You know, one of the things that my little girls love doing is they kind of, in a way, are a bit stereotypical. They love to watch those uh, Disney princess stories. So every time on Saturday night we do our pizza and a movie night, it's often uh, one of those Disney, you know. Uh, we uh, Princess and the Frog is a nice twist on that whole princess uh, theme. Uh, they liked uh, The Little Mermaid, uh, they've enjoyed Aladdin, all of these things where uh, this centers around a romantic love story. And it's not just a stereotype, I actually just this week want, went to see Crazy Rich Asians, I don't know if you've seen it. That's kind of a modern twist on the, on the princess story, it's, it's actually really good. Uh, I have to say I really enjoyed it, and uh, thankfully the theater was really dark because a manly tear, I think, went down my cheek as I was watching. <laughs> but at any rate... One of the things they love about those movies is this idea that you're falling in love, and we use that term falling in love because you're sort of wrapped up in something. It's almost as if you're being sucked into something that's so great you're carried along by grace. It's, it's something that you feel really drawn into, and what's so great is this sense that I'm almost lost a little control. I'm crazy in love, and that's a wonderful feeling, and I won't slam that. The problem is, is that those movies tend always to end at the same part. They fall in love, and they fall in love enough to want to get married, and then they live happily ever after. But if you've ever been in a situation where you love a person enough to want to be committed and say, I want to spend the rest of my life with you, that's when the trouble actually starts. <laughs> you know, they're no longer cute little problems. Oh, wasn't it cute you're always late? Isn't it cute that, you know, you uh, always uh, leave a mess? Isn't it always cute? Well, it's not so cute five years later when your floor is covered in the person's socks. It's not so cute uh, when they're always late and you need something and you have to go to work and they haven't come back from being out with their friends. And you know, Those sorts of things are often where relationships crash and burn. Sometimes, yes, we, we know, sadly, and some of you have experienced that when you say you know, for rich or for poor, for sickness uh, and in good health, that that's not just pretty words. Those are real words. Sometimes you face you know, some catastrophe. Your, your, your loved one 
uh, is struck with cancer or uh, uh, they're struggling with alcoholism or, or something that's huge and serious, but so often the things that really challenge us are the things that are so damaging and dangerous because they sneak up and they don't seem that big. They don't seem that big at the moment and yet these little tiny seeds unfortunately blossom to produce terrible toxic fruit. Those toxic fruits are there because they sour and in the darkness of us resenting and holding on to them, they get bigger and bigger and bigger. These small things blow up into something hugely big. One of the things St. Paul has been talking about through this entire letter is how you are here as Jews and as Gentiles, people who are uh, uh, people with a pagan past and those who have a Jewish past. And what a grace and incredible thing Christ has brought you together by an act uh, which you felt so drawn to because it wasn't you working, it was Christ working through you. Now you're together, and what a wonderful witness, he says, and you're to be encouraged and not to live ways of darkness. But here's the danger, the same danger as the happily ever after myth. Did you in church say, I've been saved by Christ, and now we're all united, but what is it that breaks churches apart? Yes, sometimes spectacular, terrible things. Maybe somebody's stolen something or some big scandal erupts. But I can tell you in my own experience and what knowledge I have of history in the churches so often where churches break up, fall apart, and fail is because of those small seeds of resentment and anger that never get dealt with. I think what uh, St. Paul is warning us of is that there's a way in which we're anesthetized to the problem of things. We're blinded to it. And he says that there are, in fact, forces in this world that make it somehow seem not such a big deal, when in fact it is. How easy is it for us to go through life in the church irritated by something a person does, irritated by it, irritated by it, until it blows up into a major disagreement? My own experience in church life is where the biggest disagreements have happened over over things like how the kitchen is left after youth group has been used, or what type of hymn we use, or who does what, or I've forgotten this or the other thing. So many small things blossom into something big, and I think the danger of us saying uh, we're good people doing good things, which may be very true, is that we can also forget there are things outside of us that work on these little seeds and bring them into something terrible. Be on guard. But there's also something that I think is more insidious and more in line with what we maybe would think is natural about supernatural evil or obvious. And that is what St. Paul talks about when he talks about principalities and powers and when he talks about those things seated in the heavenly places. He says, Our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, cosmic powers of this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Well, it's hard to sort of parse that, and as I said, the devil doesn't deserve much scrutiny because he's not worth it. But it is to say that there are dangers he talks about which are global and big in scale. Of course, I talked about things like Nazism and some of the terrible things we read about in the news. These are huge things. But frankly, I've known that monsters exist. We've all read stories about serial killers or about people who are psychopaths and take great delight in doing wicked things. What always amazes me is how often these people get away with things because people around them enable it and don't do anything. You know that old saying? All that is required for evil to flourish is for good people to do nothing. You know, uh, I was reminded recently about a, a book called Eichmann in Jerusalem. It was a, a woman named Hannah Arendt who was a Jewish woman and a German woman. And she fled uh, during the Second World War, just uh, before the Second World War, because she knew with the rise of Nazism that she could not be safe. 
and of course from afar looked and realized the damage and destruction done in Germany. Well, why this book became famous was because of a man named Adolf Eichmann. Eichmann was a fairly low-level in the Nazi, uh, low-level person in the Nazi hierarchy, and a person, however, who was responsible for uh, the deaths of thousands and thousands of Jewish people. His job was to increase efficiency of uh, transporting Jewish people to the death camps. But here's what was so interesting. Here's a person he escaped after the Second World War, disguised his identity, moved to South America, and in 1960. Uh, Israel tracked him down and sent them a sod, their secret service, to go and capture him, and they did. And they captured him and brought him to Jerusalem and held him on trial. Now, here's what was so interesting about her writing about this. She coined the term the banality of evil. Banal just means ordinary, boring, nothing particularly special. If you watch a movie and say it's banal, it means I've seen that plot a thousand times, nothing original about it. She went to that trial expecting she was going to see a man sitting there who was a raving psychopath who delighted in killing people, or a person seething with racial hatred who couldn't stand being in the same room with Jews. So that it wasn't actually that. What struck her was that this was a guy who was simply indifferent to evil. Why did he do this so efficiently and kill Jewish people? It's not because he hated Jewish people or that he was really a murderer at heart. You know what he did? He was highly efficient because he thought it would get him a promotion in his job. And when he was asked, you know, why didn't you do this? What, what, what human uh, resources inside of you were dead because uh, of you doing these sorts of things? Well, he said, I never really thought about it. It was just like I had received an order and I did it as if I had received an order to exterminate rats. Here was a person who simply did what he was told and didn't think about it. There's one of the great problems about principalities and powers that he talks about. He says, it's possible for an institution to be so woven through with wickedness that a person who is actually not a bad person at heart ends up anesthetizing himself, getting so used to evil that he doesn't pay attention to it and doesn't fight against it. Now, that is Nazism, and you can say that's terrible and horrible, and you're absolutely right. I would like to think that I'd be a person who would stand up against it. But how often is it that the person who is stuck in the middle of something not quite as, as, as obviously evil fails to say something because they don't want to ruin their job chances? I've been thinking about this, too, as I've been reading about the scandal unfolding in the Roman Catholic Church. It's, yes, I can see monsters doing things, I get it, but then I look and ask, well, how could a bishop find this out and just move them somewhere else? I mean, where's the righteous fury of the prophets when you hear a thing like this? Turn the other cheek. I don't want to ruin my chances for a promotion, and so I won't do anything. It's not just Catholics. I don't want to beat up on them. One of my uh, people I really admired in the evangelical tradition, a man named Bill Hybels, who really started the entire megachurch, seeker-friendly uh, approach. He was a person who very recently, uh, almost on retirement, a whole bunch of allegations that seem very credible have come out that he was a serial sexual harasser. And a person who, instead of retiring uh, and being a great, uh, a great example, is a person who's completely destroyed every reputation he had and everything that he built. You know, we go from those monstrous acts of evil, and I think then you look down to a more local level, how often is it then you look at companies where a person says, well, why did I not report safety violations? Why did I not say anything about the pollution that was going on and my company did? Why is it that I never said anything about the things going on? Not because I'm an evil person at heart, but because I said nothing, and I did nothing to protect myself and strengthen myself in speaking against evil. Here is a principality and a power at work. In our own church, I don't believe anything of monstrous wickedness is happening. I'm very proud of our congregation. I'm proud of what we do here. And I know 
we're all together struggling to do the best thing, but so often in church, what happens? Are we the people who simply ignore when things aren't going the way that they should be going? We don't want to be the nitpicking jerk who complains about everything, but how often does it happen in organizations when something needs to be said, it doesn't get said? How often does it happen in organizations when a thing needs to be done and it doesn't get done? How often does it happen that instead of us seeing this is something that needs to happen for good and God's Holy Spirit to flourish, and we say, well, it's not my responsibility. I'm guilty of this. Guilty of this when I gather with other clergy and guilty of this, I'm sure, in many ways, in small ways in my life. Don't be fooled. St. Paul says, be aware that sometimes you can be living a life that is not full of evil, but you find yourself so inured and so blind to the idea of bad things happening around you that you don't speak up or act. I think it's one of the reasons why it's so important for us to be on guard and why we need to be aware that sometimes things from outside of us, even if we didn't create it, are things that can destroy the life of a community and destroy our own spiritual walk if we're not careful. Now, I mentioned to you that I wanted to speak, and I'll speak briefly, about how important it is that we can equip ourselves. It's interesting here, as this uh, passage begins, uh, he talks about how we can be kept safe. And he says this, he says, uh, and points us to God's power in verse 11. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. You would think he goes on from there to just sort of relax, God's got it all covered. But it's interesting that when Paul speaks about this, he speaks about God equipping us, but us having responsibility to equip ourselves with what God gives us. He talks about this whole armor idea, and in that he brings up the image of a soldier going out to battle. And if you want to be in battle and well prepared, you prepare yourself by putting on good armor. So I wanted to spend a little bit of time looking quickly at what this armor consists of. Fast forward a little bit here to uh, moving about uh, verse 14. He says, Stand therefore and fasten the belt of truth around your waist and put on the breastplate of righteousness. We've spoken about this. This theme of truth comes up often in Paul, but how important it is to clothe yourself with truth. One of the dangers in institutions is that a person says, I'm going to cover the truth because it doesn't look good. Do we really believe what Jesus says? Have we committed ourselves to saying, you know what, Jesus is right when he says the truth will set us free, even if it's painful? Do we put on the belt of truth? I think Paul says you're helped in your battle against evil when you are, first of all, committed to speaking the truth, but secondly, committed to hearing the truth, even when it's unpleasant. What do we do when a person says, you know, I've noticed this, and it's been hurting me? Do we say, get lost, how dare you say it? Or do we say, you know, I'm going to think about that a little bit, because maybe you've got a point. Putting on the belt of truth and protecting yourself against attack means uh, being a person who is comfortable in the truth, committed to the truth, even when it's difficult. Breastplate of righteousness. You know, one of the things that's also challenging in life is that when we go through life and we tend to think of church and faith life as a matter of coming to church on Sunday and then the rest of the day or the rest of the week is simply up to us, is that we find ourselves going into areas and places in life that in fact do nothing to protect us against falling into what's wrong. You know, one of the frustrating things I find myself challenged by sometimes is clericalism, which is the idea that what your job is as a clergy person is to punch the clock, do a good job, and once your clock is over, you're on your own time. I was actually surprised uh, in how rarely I actually got asked about my personal faith life and all the interviews I went through to be ordained. It's kind of important to be asking, like, what's your prayer life like? Are you uh, nice in church but then a complete jerk to your wife? Are you a father that your children respect, or are you a father that they fear because they never can trust your moods? These things are important. 
And for us to believe that you can wall off one little part of your life and ignore the rest leaves yourself open to falling. He says, as shoes for your feet, put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. Are you willing to say, and are you willing to be the kind of person who goes unembarrassed by the gospel? Yes, we don't want to be Ned Flanders who puts Jesus into every single conversation, but are you the kind of person who, when asked, what did you do on Sunday morning, and went to church, and I'm unashamed of the fact that I love Jesus and he loves me? You know how many good conversations I have when instead of me thinking, oh, I hope they don't ask me what I do because then I'm going to have to get a conversation. Or are they going to tell me, oh, here's this problem with the church? But instead, go out to the conversations I have and say, what will be, what will be, and I don't have to have every answer. Are you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace when a person says, well, what about the church in the way that it is a failed young people? You know, I'm sorry that it's happened and I wish it were different. Well, what about its legacy of abuse? Or what about this? What about this? I don't have to have every answer, and I don't have to be the one to protect the church. Christ is strong enough to bear it on his shoulders. All I can say is, yeah, it grieves me, and it grieves Christ too when the church has failed. And I don't have every answer for why evil prospers. I just know that my life is better when I follow Christ, and I've come to trust him. Can we live without shame and be ready and clothe ourselves enough to proclaim the gospel without fear? And with all of these, take the shield of faith. Do you uh, exercise disciplines that makes your faith stronger so that when the devil throws some lie at you and says God doesn't really love you or he thinks that you're too much of a failure to join into his church or that uh, perhaps the people in your church don't care for you as much as they say they do. How do you combat that? You combat that by practices that keep bringing you back to Christ, coming back to the Eucharist, hearing the word and listening And how do you take up the Spirit of God, he says. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, the quent, excuse me, which is the Word of God, you take that up by learning the Scriptures enough to know when a lie is thrown at you that it's not true. God doesn't care for sinners. Well, God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believed in Him might not perish, but have eternal life. The Lord loves us, and knowing the Word, knowing the Scriptures, gives us ammunition whenever doubts and fears arise that threaten to knock us off our faith. And lastly this, one of the greatest things you can do in making your church a stronger place and one that is free of the influence of evil is to commit yourself to praying for those who lead. Paul is very clear in saying, please pray for me. To that end, keep alert, always persevere in supplication for all the saints. Pray also for me so that when I speak, a message may be given to me to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. How easy it is for leaders like everyone else to fall and how much damage happens when they do. You want this church to succeed. You want the church around the world to reform when it fails. Pray for the church. Pray for your brothers and sisters who sit next to you week by week. And pray that they might be strengthened because we are not fighting flesh and blood and we do not have power in ourselves to win a victory over the daily battles we face. Instead, we need the supreme power of God and His grace so that we might flourish and grow. You can have an exciting part in helping your leaders flourish and grow if you commit yourself to praying for their protection, guidance, and strength.